Great song. I first heard that in Phoenix, Arizona, when we were there setting in our new uh, president over Church on the Rock International. And they sang that, and I just thought, oh my gosh, that, that is a song. So, can any good thing come out of Phoenix? Yes. All right. Well, God is good. Amen? How many of you are ready to get into the Word? Amen. A couple of quick things. Uh, some really good stuff coming up this fall. Now, our kids are in school. Most, all of them started Monday. And so how many of you parents have a kid in school now? See, that sounded like an amen to me. Uh, but we always try to launch a few new things in, in the fall and uh, some good stuff coming. Starting September 15th, we're going to have, starting at 1030 in the morning, Sunday mornings, uh, apologetics. Now, apologetics doesn't mean you're apologizing, but it means a defense of the faith. And um, we're going to be going through Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and it's going to be really, really good. It's going to be in room 150. 10.30 to 11.30. How many of you think you might want to go through that? It's a great class. How to give an answer to tough questions so you can be more confident in your witness. Then, Lord willing, somewhere in October, certainly before Thanksgiving, probably, hopefully October, we're going to launch a class or a study or a ministry for young adults, young marrieds. And that'll be, we've got a classroom for that. We've chosen some great curriculum, it looks like, to me. It, I feel real good about it. As a matter of fact, I'm excited about it. And that's going to be taking place on Sunday as well. So young marriage, young, young adults, and those of you that want to be able to answer tough questions, how to defend the faith, then apologetics starting September 15th. Amen? Now. Let's pray together, and then we're going to get right into the Song of Solomon tonight. Father, we thank you that you are here to teach us by the Holy Spirit. And we pray that you will help us to see what the Spirit of God intended when he inspired this incredible book, the Song of Solomon. We thank you for it. Now, will you breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, speak to my heart tonight and draw me closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell them the Lord is good all the time. Amen. Now, for those of you that might be new to this uh, series, we're on the seventh week. We've only got three to go and we're done. But we have, uh, we've been going through the Song of Solomon. This was penned by Solomon. But really, it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, as was all the Word of God. Uh, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. How much of Scripture? All of Scripture is given by the divine inspiration of God. And it's profitable for correction, instruction, and righteousness, and so on and so forth, uh, that the man of God, woman of God, might be thoroughly furnished for all good works. So the Word of God is for, uh, all of the Word of God is for us, to feed us. It is heaven's manna. Now, Song of Solomon is no exception. And let's go over the main characters so that once again, we won't, uh, we, we'll know where we're going. Um, you have three or four main characters in here. 
others that pop in and out from time to time. But first you've got Solomon, of course. And Solomon in this book, I contend, is a tempter. He is not godly. He's, he's not Christ-like. He's worldly. So a lot of folks haven't understand that, sort of that approach to this book, but I don't see it any other way. Solomon is no more Christ-like than Demas in the New Testament. He's just not. So there's Solomon, the tempter. Then there is the Shulamite, who is a picture of you and me, the church. And then, of course, there is the shepherd, who is clearly a picture of our great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's the court women. The court women pop in and out throughout this song, and they are pictures of worldly people who do not understand the love that the Shulamite has for the shepherd. And it's so in our world today. The world does not understand the church's love for Jesus. It's just not there. They don't get it. Why in the world would you live so straight-laced and not go partying and party-hardy and drinking and doping and sexing and all this? How, how come? What's the matter with you? Well, we have met a wonderful shepherd, and he has won our heart. Okay? So that's the message of the, the Song of Solomon. And it, it's a drama. It's a poem. It's a, there's drama in it and all the elements of a great Shakespearean play, but it's not Shakespearean. It is from God. So let's look this time at an hour of testimony. Now, last time we covered the first 15 verses of chapter 4. We finished with the shepherd talking about the Shulamite's person, her position, her passion, her protection, and her perfection. So five P's there, in case you didn't catch that. Her person, position, passion, protection, and her perfection. Now, just before the shepherd ended their tryst, he whispered to her a few words about the greatest and brightest hope of all, the promised rapture or her deliverance from Solomon's court, Solomon's pavilion, to be exclusively with the shepherd. Now, of course, that is a picture of what is coming for the real church of Jesus Christ. The day is going to come when a trumpet is going to blow and God is going to take us out of Solomon's pavilion, the world, and all of its temptation and all of its battle and all of its warfare, and then we are ever going to be with our great shepherd without interruption, without the devil, without sin, without the world. No detours, roadblocks, nothing to stop us from fully being in his presence. That's the message here. She has been, the Shulamite has been kidnapped and brought into Solomon's pavilion. He intends to make her one of his harem. And he had a harem. 700 concubines, a thousand wives. Lord, he needed prayer in a lot of ways. And it was those wives, by the way, that carried him into idolatry because he married foreign wives that God had forbidden him from doing. And they carried him into an idolatry and an idol worship that is almost beyond comprehension. But that's another message. Now, picking up the story in the last verse of chapter 4, we hear the Shulamites plea. Now, this is the end of chapter 4. Here's the Shulamites plea. She says, Awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden, 
that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Now, what's she talking about? The Shulamite is talking about the north wind and the south wind. What is she referring to? Well, we know that a north wind is chilly. It's more adversarial than anything, chilling us to the bone. When a real strong north wind comes, we bundle up, and it's not a pleasant thing to go out into it. That's the north wind. A south wind is more pleasant. Not in August in Texas. Let's talk about a spring wind, okay? But a south wind is more pleasant. It's like a balmy spring breeze. So she's saying, blow north wind and come south wind. What is she saying? What is she referring to? She's saying that no matter the circumstances, if it's difficult, if it's adversarial, or if it's pleasant times, she was determined to be a blessing to her beloved. Here's what she's saying. She's saying what we ought to be saying to Jesus, what our attitude ought to be. And it's this, that, Lord, if I'm going through trouble, I'm still going to praise you. If I'm going through good times, I'm not going to forget to praise you. Chilly wind, cold wind is not going to drive me away from you. And south winds are not going to make me forget you. I'm going to be a blessing to you. That's her intent. I'm going to be a blessing to the shepherd no matter the weather. So we wake up in the morning, we've got bills that haven't been paid, and the kids are going nuts, and our marriage is in trouble, and we wonder what we're going to do, what direction we're going to take. That's the cold wind. And we say with the Shulamite, I'm still going to be a blessing to you, Lord, because I know you've got it all under control, so I'm with you. And when it's the south wind and it's good times and all the bills are paid and you've got extra money and everything seems to be going well and you are sailing through calm waters, you don't forget to be a blessing to the Lord and don't let the good times cause you to forget Him. That's what she's saying. So whether it was a north wind or a south wind, the spices of her garden, her attitude would flow out in a blessing to the shepherd. And she's also anticipating the final consummation of their relationship. Now, this is intimate, okay? That moment when he finally comes to rescue her from Solomon's pavilion and makes her his own. It's, it's wedding time. It's honeymoon time. That's what she's talking about. Look at what she says in verse 16, the latter half of the verse. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste his choice fruits. This cry of the Shulamite echoes the longing of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't it? She's saying what we've read so often in the Bible. Even so, come Lord Jesus. It says in Revelation 22, 20, right at the end of that incredible prophecy, John writes, He who is the faithful witness to all these things says, let's read it together, Yes, I am coming soon. I read this good and loud. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's what she's saying. She's saying, Shepherd, when you're ready, I'm ready. Come and get me out of here, for my ultimate is to be with you forever. And I really do believe that the more the last days move along and the tougher times get out there and the darker it seems to to become. Uh, the, the, the cry of the church is going to increase. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Oh, come Lord Jesus. Listen, when the times are tough out there, it causes you to look up and say, Lord, my eyes are on you. And I want you to come and take us out. Paul wrote to the Philippians, 
Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, do you eagerly await His return? What if you knew He was coming tonight? Would you sit here for the rest of this service, or would you run and make some things right before He showed up? What would it do to you if you knew He was coming again tonight? Would it scare you? Would it excite you? Would you feel like, well, I better make some phone calls? get some things right, ask for forgiveness, forgive some others, heal some relationships. What would you do if you knew that he was coming back tonight? I really believe when you're really right and walking in the Spirit, you can say with Paul, we eagerly await a Savior from there. Now, just as the Shulamite wanted deliverance from Solomon's courts, the church longs for the rapture and our deliverance from this present evil world. And this is one troubled world. And it's only going to get worse, church, can I tell you. Evolution is not going to make it better because evolution doesn't exist. We're not evolving into a better place. We're devolving into a more difficult place. Satan knows his time is short and has come down with great wrath. But we walk with a victor who gives us peace in the storm. Amen? Now, unfortunately, the translators, when they were dividing up the chapters, and it was translators that did it, you do understand, in the original language, there were no chapters. It was just a long scroll, and it was a, a, just a, a continuum. But the translators came along and divided the Bible up into chapters, uh, and, and it's a good thing they did. It's easier to remember, easier to read, kind of marks things off. But when they ended chapter 4 with verse 16, I think they made a mistake. They should have made one more, verse 17, and made chapter 5, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 17. Because I think chapter 5, verse 1 is directly attached to 4, verse 16. Does that make sense? Okay, let's look. We see in chapter 5, verse 1 that the shepherd was just as excited with the prospect of rapture as was the Shulamite. Look what he says, verse 1. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. The shepherd had an expectation of marital bliss. Notice he speaks of her as his bride. He longs to consummate the betrothal when the proper time arrives. Now, let me ask you a question. Are you aware that Jesus feels that way about the church? Now, I'm not talking sexual. This is not ultimately sexual. I mean, do you know that when the Father finally turns to the Son and says, go get your bride, Jesus is going to say, hallelujah, because he wants to be with those his blood redeemed. All right? So, so that's what's going on here. The great truth here is that the rapture of the church. The Lord is coming for His church. He does indeed intend to catch it up in His arms and take it forever to be with Himself. And then we will go to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It'll be a feast like you have never, you can't even begin to imagine it because eye has not seen, nor has ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. What a day that's going to be.
when Jesus comes. And instantly we shall see him and we will be like him for we shall see him as he is. In John 14, verses 2 through 3, Jesus says, and I read this at every funeral I ever preside over. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive it in myself. Now, verse 1 is um, tell, Jesus telling us not to be afraid, not to be afraid of death, not to be afraid of evil. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Then he says, I go to prepare a place for you. That's why you shouldn't be afraid. That's why you shouldn't be troubled. Because the one who was a carpenter before he started his ministry is a carpenter still. He went into glory and has built a mansion, a place of dwelling for every one of his redeemed. And it's going to make Rodeo Drive and any other wealthy area that you can find in this world pale in comparison to what the master carpenter has built for the redeemed. That's a fact. Look what he said. I'm going to come again and receive you unto myself. Do you believe that tonight? That's the promise of Jesus. And he went on to say that where I am, there you may be also. All right? So, beautiful stuff. Now the next section of the poem is an hour of testimony. The shepherd had come and gone. The soul of the Shulamite is ablaze with song. And she wants to share her joy with others. Now there's not very many people to share it with except these court women who don't understand her love for the shepherd. But she can't help it. And what we're about to see is this Shulamite, who has just spent this quality time with the shepherd, is about to start witnessing of the beauty of the shepherd. Do you know that you can't spend quality time with Jesus without wanting to go out and tell somebody how wonderful he is? I'm going to say that again. You cannot come out of the presence of the Lord and have had a feast in his word and a wonderful time in prayer and tasted and seen that the Lord is good without wanting to go out and tell somebody how wonderful your great shepherd is. And that's what's happening to her right here in chapter 5. She says to the court women, eat, friends, and drink. Drink your fill of love. In other words, partake with me of the joy I have with my beloved. I want you to know what I know. I want you to know the one who I love. I want you to meet the shepherd like I have met the shepherd. Let me tell you of his love. Now, she's about to go on a major brag session about the shepherd. And I tell you, church, when a church is red hot and walking in the Spirit and experiencing his blessing, we ought to have brag fits about Jesus. We ought to go out and just brag on Jesus. You don't have to be a theologian to brag on Jesus. Amen? Amen. Essentially, she's witnessing to these court women who love Solomon and not the shepherd, and they listen amazed at such love. Now, in chapter 5, verse 9, we're going to see the court women want to know, what's so great about your shepherd? How is your beloved better than others? And we're going to read that verse in a minute. How is your beloved better than others? And they're referring to Solomon. How is your shepherd better than the one we love? Solomon, oh, most beautiful of women. How is your beloved better than others that you charge us like you do? 
And this gives the Shulamite the opportunity to witness of the shepherd. And this is exactly what happens with us after having spent quality time with our great shepherd as she just has in church. In the next few weeks, in November, we're going to do a major witnessing outreach. We are going to go for souls in November. We are joining hands with the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association and we are going to see souls saved in living rooms of members of our church and in the church services itself. I pray by the hundreds in November. You're going to be hearing about it more and more and more. And you know what? If you're really caught up in the beauty of the shepherd, it is no problem to go out and say, let me tell you about my shepherd. Let me talk to you about my Jesus. Let me tell you how good it is to walk with him. It is not a burden. It's not a pain. It is liberation. It is freedom. He set me free. His love is like none other. And I could get carried away right now. But that's what we're going to do in November. All right? We want to tell the world how wonderful he is. How many of you can agree with that? All right. She begins by describing the dream. Now, how many of you remember the dream she had that we were dealing with at the beginning? Raise your hand if you remember that dream. She had that dream. You have to go back to chapter 3 to read about it. But she begins by kind of going back to that dream we looked at in chapter 3 of the shepherd approaching her at night. She describes the shepherd knocking. Now, remember, the shepherd is a picture of Jesus. She's a picture of us. Keep that in mind. Now, here she's telling these court women, here's what happened to me. I was asleep, but my heart was awake. Listen, she says to them. My beloved is knocking. What does he say? Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. Those words are words of love. This shepherd knocking on the door of her home is telling her how much he loves her. Now, it's easy to take this back to the first time Jesus knocked on the door of our heart. Revelation says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if any man or woman hears my voice, and opens the door of their heart, I will come into them and sup with them, which means fellowship with them, and they with me. This is another picture, an Old Testament picture of that New Testament truth. He said, open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flaws. I love you. Open to me. Let me in perfectly describes how our shepherd first comes to us. And I just quoted that verse. But next we see that she did not open the door. In this dream, she didn't open the door. She did not let him in. She allowed him to stand outside a barred and bolted door in the wet and cold night. Dew dripping on his hair. She didn't let him in. And it's a perfect picture on how we have bolts and deadlocks on our heart and how we resist the Lord. We may let him into a few rooms, but there's always a room or two that is still deadbolted and locked. And you know what? You never experience the fullness of Jesus till every door and every room in your soul 
has had the lock removed and Jesus has been allowed into every room. But she leaves him out there and she tells us of her silly reasons for turning him away. Verse 3, she says, ah, you know, I, I see you knock, I hear you knocking and I see you out there, but I, I've taken off my robe. Must I really put it on again? I've washed my feet. Must I soil them again? Excuses, excuses. You know that Jesus talked about those excuses? He said, he talked about him holding a banquet and sending out people, sending out messengers to invite people to the banquet. And all they hear is excuses. Well, I'd love to come, but I've, I've married a wife. I cannot come. And I've bought me a cow. I cannot come. And I'm watching football. I cannot come. Oh, I'm sorry. That wasn't in there. I, I missed that. Or I had to go to the mall. I cannot come. Or, you know, life is just busy, Lord. I cannot open to you. Maybe when I'm old and gray and decrepit and sitting in some nursing home, then I'll let you in when there's nothing else to do in life. And only a fool says that. See, if you're looking for an excuse to shut Jesus out, the devil will give you 10 excuses in five minutes. Bottom line is this. You want him in your life, you will find a way to let him into your life. That's a fact. But this Shulamite, turn him away. Turn him away. And so often it's our refusal to get out of our comfort zone. We're in our lazy boy. We don't want to fool with Christianity. It causes us to miss God. Or we don't want to get our feet dirty in the ministry of the Lord. I want to go out there and minister to all those people. I don't want to give my time. I don't want to give my strength. I'm busy. I've got a family. I've got bills to pay. So I'm not going to get my feet. Must I put my robe on again? Must I put my shoes on again? I don't want to be inconvenienced by God's call. So the Shulamite at this time, listen to me, she missed her chance at this time. Next, she tells of her sad reward for turning him away. Look what she says happened in verse 4. My beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. Now, let me help you with this one. One commentator puts this verse. My beloved thrust in his hand at the window because the door was locked. So he put his hand through the window, but in the margin of the companion Bible, the reading is suggested, quote, then my beloved withdrew his hand. I think that's closest to the fact. He's knocking. It's deadbolted as locked. She will not inconvenience herself to let him into her life. He withdraws his hand and he walks away. He's not like Solomon who grabbed her and forced her and coerced her and took her into his pavilion. This shepherd is more like our shepherd. He's a gentleman. He'll knock. But if any man hears my voice and uses his will to open the door, if he opens the door, I will come in. But if he doesn't open the door, I don't come in. If he will not open to the Lord Jesus when he knocks, if we will not open to the Lord Jesus when he knocks, you know what he does? He leaves us to ourselves. He says, okay, you know, I came knocking, and, and, and here's what I've noticed. Years in the ministry, here's what I've noticed. The Lord comes knocking at very, very key times in our life. Knock, 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 knock. 
because he sees what is down the road. He knows where we're going. Oh, I've seen this happen so many times with teenagers, so many times, well, really all ages. He comes knocking and, 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 and the door of our heart is dead bolted and locked, just like this woman had it, Shulamite. And he finally withdraws his hand, but the reason he was knocking is because you'll see in this person's life that not very far down the road, there was danger, there was trouble, there was heartache, there was pain. And you see that God was extending his grace to try to give an option to call them before they really went in a bad direction. He, he is a God of exquisite, perfect timing. He sees the whole picture, the end from the beginning. All we see is now. Many who don't respond to his knocking never realize that he withdrew way back along the way. And for me, that's a scary thought because the last thing I want the Lord doing is withdrawing because I kept the door locked. Okay? Suddenly it dawned on the Shulamite what she had just done. And she confesses, my heart began to pound for him. She's realizing her mistake. She is covered with shame. Fully aware of the enormity of her offense, she jumps out of bed and throws the door open. And look what it says in verse 5 and 6. I arose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh. She had put on a little bit of perfume to be appealing. My fingers with flowing myrrh on the handles of the bolt. She's second-guessing her decision. She's regretting that she turned him away. She says in verse 6, I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. You see... When grace comes knocking, if grace is not received, grace goes on down the street and waits for another opportune moment, if you get another moment. Now, what to do, she thinks. He's gone, and she decided to give chase. You remember this story? It's in chapter 3. She said in verse 6, I looked for him but did not find him. I called him but he did not answer. The Shulamite went out into the night throughout the darkened streets of the city in a frantic search for the shepherd she had turned away. She literally went out into the, into the far eastern night. There weren't any street lights back then, folks. No street lights, no cop cars, no anything we're used to. And despite her desperate calling out, he still did not answer. He still did not answer. She could not find him. As a result of her search for the shepherd, she was injured. Now, this caught me in a way that it's never caught me, but I saw something here. It says in verse 7, remember those watchmen that found her, but something is added in chapter 5. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city, and look what happened to her. They beat me and they bruised me. And she was also insulted. It says in verse 7, they took away my cloak. Those watchmen of the walls, they took away my cloak, and the cloak was a sign of an honorable woman. They took away her cloak. Why? They thought she was a woman of the night. She's out there wandering around in the dark, alone, in a far eastern city, and these watchmen saw her and said, well, that's a prostitute. And they beat her and injured her, and 
insulted her. So what is that saying, Pastor Jeff? The same thing that happened to her happened to the believer that gets out of touch with the Lord who goes astray. Listen to me, church. Let me tell you the truth. Because you're a child of God doesn't mean he keeps his hedge around you if you go astray. He will protect you for a while, but the day will come if you insist. See, she had not let him in. She was on her own out there looking for him now. The idea is a backslider is always in danger of being injured and insulted, hurt, damaged when they get out of the presence of the Lord and walk after their own will. I know that's strong, but I'm going to tell you the truth tonight. You say, well, God will protect me because I'm His child. He understands. No, the day will come. And it's the same with a nation. When a nation walks away from God, when an individual walks away from God, God will give you time to repent, but if you don't, if you keep that door bolted and you keep Him out and you go doing your own thing, the watchman of the night will find you and they'll injure you and you'll be insulted and you will lose your honor and you will lose your respect and you will lose a lot of things if you walk away from God. It opens you up to the enemy. Those watchmen are like the enemy here. It opens you up to the enemy when you expose yourself. It's a, it's a very, very serious thing to walk away from God. It really is. Very serious. So here she is. She gets beat up. She gets bruised. She's hurt. She became prey to the hostile influences that stalked the night. The large uh, hedge of protection was lifted. She ends her story with an exhortation to the court women. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, if you find my beloved, what will you tell him? Tell him I am faint with love. Now, having been freshly shaken from recounting this dream she had, she exhorts these women who could have cared less. But she exhorts them to tell the shepherd of her longing for him should they see him. And they respond with mockery. Here it is, verse 9. How is your beloved better than others? Most beautiful of women. How is your beloved better than others that you so charge us? He's not all that. They only said that because they didn't know him. They knew the phony. They knew the fake. They knew Solomon, not the shepherd. So don't expect the world to ever understand your love for the shepherd. They can't. Paul wrote, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. It's the only person that can rejoice over your walk with the shepherd is somebody else who's walking with the shepherd. Amen? Now the Shulamite now continues her discourse. She's not done. She's going to keep on witnessing. And she's going to now describe her beloved and my Lord, it's like we're looking at somebody on a front of GQ magazine. Verse 10, my beloved is white and ruddy. Now, who's she talking about? These women that could care less who are in love with Solomon. She says, let me tell you about my shepherd. He's white and ruddy, chief among 10,000. White is a symbol of purity and holiness. Ruddy speaks of glowing health. My shepherd, I'm, I'm hesitant to say this. 
my shepherd is hot. That's what she's saying. But there is symbolism here for us, okay? She goes on to say, his head is like the finest gold. His locks are wavy and black as a raven. Now, the head like gold speaks of sovereignty. The sovereignty of Christ is what the wise men had in mind when they brought gold to him, the royal gift. His black wavy locks symbolize virility and vital force. It suggests a person in the prime of life. Then she mentions his eyes. His eyes, she says in verse 12, are like doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. As mentioned earlier in our study, remember, doves' eyes speak of the Holy Spirit. And here's what she's saying. The shepherd's eyes were filled with the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Don't you know that's what Jesus' eyes were like? You know, the Bible says he wasn't handsome. Isaiah the prophet said there's nothing about him that is beautiful physically. But I believe when Jesus looked at you, his eyes went straight through you. He read your soul at a glance. And no purer set of eyes ever gazed at you but the eyes of Jesus coming out of a man who had never known sin, who had never had broken relationship with God, who was pure, whose father was God, whose mother was earthly, but father was heavenly. And when he looked at you, I believe it was unforgettable. She said, his eyes are like dove's eyes. Next, she talks about her beloved's sweetness. She says in verse 13, his cheeks are like a bed of spices, banks of scented herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. What is all that? Spices and herbs are all about fragrance, like perfume. To be near the shepherd was to be enfolded in such sweet fragrance that it took your breath away. And his <clears throat> lips were like lilies, dripping myrrh. To me, I can't get away from what it says about Jesus Christ. No man ever spoke like this man. His lips dripped like myrrh. When Jesus talked, everybody listened. Who ever taught like Jesus? Who ever preached like Jesus? If you just open up Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and read the Sermon on the Mount, there is no philosopher in the history of the world that ever spoke words like Jesus did. His lips dripped myrrh. They were filled with the Word of God. He spoke, and it was God's pure, undiluted, unfiltered Word. His lips dripped with the myrrh of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, and they still do. Then she mentions his hands. Verse 14, his hands are, are rods of gold set with beryl. His body is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. How many of you guys would love to be described this way? Come on, guys. Let me see your hands. Can you imagine a girlfriend of yours, if you're single, going off and saying, man, I'll tell you, I met this guy. His hands are like gold set with beryl. His body is carved ivory. Come on, guys. Hands speak of skill. Skill. Think of Jesus' hands. He touched the sick, and they were healed. His hands broke the seven loaves and two fishes, and they multiplied. His hands fearlessly touched the forbidden leper. Nobody else would touch the leper, but Jesus did. <clears throat> Reached out and touched him when he said, Do you want me whole? And he said, I will, and touched him. 
All of this with consummate skill. The hands of Jesus were the most coveted hands on earth when he was walking around on earth because to be touched by his hands was to be healed, delivered, blessed. He picked up the little children with his hands and said, of such is the kingdom of God. His hands were nailed to that cross for our redemption. And when he came out of the grave, his hands were held out in blessing. The hands of Jesus. Mm. Next, the Shulamite mentions the shepherd's legs and countenance. Verse 15, his legs are pillars of marble set on bases of fine gold. His countenance is like Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. Now in Scripture, the legs speak of stability and strength. We talk of somebody taking a stand of courage and boldness. Now let me tell you what it says about Jesus. When he returns, it says his feet are going to land on the Mount of Olives. And there his feet and legs are going to stand there when he returns to rule the earth. Our Lord took a stand against sin, a stand against the devil, a stand against death, hell, and the grave. He took a stand on our behalf. And once again, he's going to come and stand as Lord of lords and King of kings, not the devil, not men, but Christ and his legs. This was the shepherd, and it's our Savior set on bases of fine gold, again, speaks of his sovereignty. His countenance speaks of his splendor, as excellent of the cedars of Lebanon. These Lebanese cedars were renowned for their majesty, stateliness, and their beauty. And the writer is saying, as, as the cedars of Lebanon just bowl you over when you see them, so was the countenance of the shepherd. And finally, she talks about the shepherd's smile. His mouth says verse 16, his mouth is most sweet. Yes, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Man, has she just witnessed or what? The Lord Jesus, let me tell you, was no remote, untouchable, cold, and impassive person. His face said, come unto me. I heard somebody preach once in closing here tonight. I heard somebody say, there's two kinds of faces in the world. Faces that say no and faces that say yes. You have a no face, don't come near me. Or you have a yes face that says, get to know me. I'm approachable. And I want to get to know you. Jesus had a yes face. She said, oh, his smile is something. But the testimony is not quite finished. She's talked about her dream, has described the shepherd, now she has a word about his departure. The court women are stunned with her description of the shepherd. So they ask her, well, well then where is your beloved gone, fairest among women? Where is your beloved turned aside? Where is he that we can go and find him with you? You know what she discerned? Their request wasn't honest. They were insincere. They didn't want to know the shepherd. They were just so overwhelmed by what she said. Oh, sure, I'll go to Bible study with you. I'll go to church with you. But they didn't have any real longing for the shepherd. The Shulamite discerned this, and she realizes she'd been casting her pearls before swine. 
As Jesus talked about Matthew 7, 6, they weren't really interested at all. So she gives them a very vague answer. Well, let me tell you where he is. My beloved has gone to his garden, to the beds of spices, to feed his flock in the gardens, and to gather lilies. In other words, he's in a noble, good, and honorable place, and I know where to find him, and so do we. We know where our great shepherd can be found. He's in heaven at God's right hand, and he's leading his sheep. The Shulamite ends on a sad note. It's with the realization that not everyone that says they want to know our shepherd is sincere. These court women didn't want to really know him. And so we can describe him in all his glory, but it doesn't matter. If they don't want him, they don't want him. So she says in verse 3, I am my beloved's, and he's mine. I've got him. I know him. Whether or not you want to, he feeds his flock among the lilies, and you can know him if you want to. And she ends her witness. Can we stand tonight? Now, how many of you feel like you could go out and brag on your great shepherd? Amen? That's what witnessing is. It's just bragging on Jesus. Amen? Let's go to him together. Father, we just thank you that the way the Shulamite described the shepherd is certainly a picture of you. And as she bragged on the shepherd, Lord, put it in the hearts of your church, this congregation, and every one of our friends listening by radio who are in other churches. See how this Shulamite witnessed and bragged on the shepherd to women who are far from him. And help us, Lord, to be bold and take a stand for our great shepherd and talk about the beauty of him to a lost and a dying world. Can we lift our hands up towards him together? Say, Lord, help me to brag on you like she bragged on the shepherd. In Jesus' name. Let's sing a stanza and then we'll go. Thank you, Lord. Oh, I'm running to your arms. I'm running to your arms. The riches of your love will we'll always be enough. Nothing compares to your embrace. Light of the Nothing compares 